Welcome to the Money Hour with host Tina Mitchell. Tina Mitchell, MLO 145420, is a licensed loan originator with Highlands Residential Mortgage Limited, NMLS 134871. The views expressed by the speakers on the following program are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views of Highlands Residential Mortgage Limited, nor are they necessarily endorsed by Highlands Residential Mortgage Limited. Now in the studio, local mortgage expert, Tina Mitchell. Welcome to the Money Hour at 1150 AM KKNW, the Saturday, January 21st show. You can also listen to my show podcast, Facebook premiere, or you can catch my show on my show YouTube channel. I am your host and local mortgage expert, Tina Mitchell, bringing in expert advice and inside knowledge on today's events and how they can affect your money. If you're hearing my show at a different time or day, you are listening to a rebroadcast. I'm here to answer any questions or more importantly, to connect you with the two guests that I have on the show today. You can reach the show by going online to themoneyhour.com. And my lineup for today's show, I have John Hensler of Remore Capital Equity and Energy Outlook for 2023. And also, if you're watching my show on my Facebook premiere or YouTube channel, I would like to take this opportunity to introduce my producer over at Hubbard Radio, Benny. Hi, Atina. Welcome back. Good to see you. Yeah, thank you so much. Welcome back, because I just got back from Mexico, uh, Tranconis. And if you are watching me on video, you might notice that it looks like I have a black eye. Yes, I do. It was a scooter accident. Accident. I learned a lot on what not to do. Um, so anyways, full disclosure. Were you wearing there. your helmet, though? Well, they don't even give you a helmet. We're in oh, Tranconis, Mexico. Mexico so, I guess, right? Yeah, no, no helmet. The All bike right. looks worse than me. Thank goodness my passenger does not look worse oh. than me. I think I broke uh, the fall pretty good on my own, but um, she looks like she had lip injections on half of her lips. Yikes. Yikes. <laughs> yeah, quite a, a memory for sure. So, Benny, thank you. Everything that you do uh, for the show, really appreciate it. Could not do it without you. Sure thing. Great information and great guests in studio today. For more information on any topic discussed, you can reach the show by going to online at themoneyhour.com. And also, I forgot to give a shout out for my second guest that is partner with John, and that's Aiden Gray. Again, both of them are of Remore Capital. We're going to be talking on equity and energy outlook for 2023. And now, as I do each week, let's go ahead and start out the show with a little bit of money chat. Money. If you've recently embarked in the world of child rearing or are a seasoned veteran, you may have experienced the phenomenon of post Christmas wish list. This plays out in some form or fashion of a child completely forsaking all of the presents they just received on Christmas Day and immediately drafting up a new proposal of present request for the impending Christmas which is 11 months away. It's a difficult task to remind them that Christmas is indeed coming, but practicing patience is going to be the best plan of action for the coming months. And FYI, Santa is watching. Perhaps we all have a similar wish list as we start 2023. In the mortgage world, we have pleaded that if we are all good boys and girls, perhaps we will get the gift of lower interest rates nearly wrapped up us under the tree with a little tag that reads, okay, 
to open before Christmas. Well, two weeks into January, Christmas seems to have come early. It was joyous as we watched Treasury yields plummet from the combination of both fundamental and technical cues to give way to a new horizon of trading range. Having secured a close below the 3.4% level on the 10-year, we now see the 3.4 as our new backstop with a support zone of 3.5%. The new line in the sand for further improvements now looks to be the 200-day moving average currently at 3.29%. Overnight, we made a run at it, but the zone is going to be one that will require further data to muster the momentum required to breach it. Although 3.29% will prove to be the formidable opponent, it's evident that the market has been favoring lower yields. And inflation easing sentiment is the biggest champion in this move. Where we go from here will depend on the data and the Fed speak. Of course, the looming Fed meeting on February 1st will also confirm the new range. Where we sit right now, a quarter percent hike seems to hold very strong conviction in our markets today. What a difference a few monthly cycles of data make in our overall well-being. Not too far in the distant past, we can recall how much angst there was when the market felt the extremes of policy tightening and fear that the interest rates were going to be in the mid-8s or higher on a 30-year fixed rate. Well, thankfully, that plan that lay before took a fork. Today, our attitudes towards the new year are becoming more and more optimistic. What was merely a hope and prayer now seems to be confirmed that we are on the right track. Yes, the difference is all about the data. And the data says, happy day. The world is your oyster versus TGIF. I found another gray hair. Seeing some slight price weakening this week, mostly driven by the need for some consolidation off what has been a good distance of rate improvements. I find this slight move back higher a positive response if it gives the market time to take a breath, re-easing and then dry our powder for the next move. Truthfully, we don't want to elevate or drop as that would be seen as an alarm bell sounding. Instead, we want a uniform and steady movements that afford mindful consideration of each level the market's wanting to price at. The December producer price index PPI report showed that overall producer inflation decreased by 0.5%, which was much cooler than the negative 1% drop expected. Year-over-year inflation declined from a downwardly revised 73 to 6.2%. This was much lower than the 6.8% expected and is a 1.1% drop from the previous reading. Think about the progress that's been made on the producer inflation side of things. This reading was at 11.7% at its peak and is now almost half of what it was. Now, the core rate, which strips out food and energy prices, rose 0.1%, which was in line with the estimates, but the previous report was revised lower to 0.2%. Year-over-year core PPI declined from 6.2% to 5.5%, which was also cooler than expectations of 5.7%. Overall, inflation continues to subside, and the bond market is rallying. Tina Mitchell here, and that is your money chat. Coming up next on the Money Hour, John Hensler and... And Aiden Gray of Remore Capitals talking at Equity and Energy Outlook of 2023 right here on 1150 AM KKNW.
Are you a parent that's wondering about how you will pay for college? Are you afraid your child is behind on their college applications? Are you worried that you will never be able to support your child properly through the college admission process? Do you or someone you know have student loan debt that you have no idea how you will ever pay off? Elise Howard at College Insights navigates students and their families through these processes all the time. With almost 20 years of experience in education and the only certified financial aid advisor in Washington State, Elise's mission is to help students and their families through this complicated and overwhelming time in life. College applications have changed so much over the years and involve so many little details that students often struggle to meet the numerous deadlines. Having a go-to person that can hold your hand through the process makes a huge difference in getting accepted. Get the help you need and reach out to College Insights today at collegeinsights.com. Real people, real life, real radio. Alternative Talk 1150. You're listening to The Money Hour with your host, Tina Mitchell, on Alternative Talk 1150 AM. Now, back to the show with local mortgage expert, Tina Mitchell. You are listening to The Money Hour at 1150 AM KKNW, the Saturday, January 21st show. You can also listen to my show podcast, Facebook premiere, or you can catch my show on my show YouTube channel. I'm your host and local mortgage expert, Tina Mitchell. It is a great day to talk about money, and that is what my show is all about, how to make money, save money, so you can build a better quality of life for you and your family. If you're hearing my show at a different time or day, you are listening to a rebroadcast. I'm here to answer any questions or connect you with the two guests I have on the show today. You can reach the show online at themoneyhour.com. And now in studio, virtual studio, I have John Hensler and Aiden Gray of Remore Capital talking on equity and energy outlook of 2023 right here on 1150 AM KKNW. Welcome to both of you to my show. Hi, Tina. It's great to be here. Yeah, very excited to have you. So before we get into uh, the questions I have for you today, let me share with my listeners a little bit about both of you. Born and raised in Seattle, John attended the University of Washington. He graduated with degrees in economic and informics and was the vice president of the University of Washington Finance Association, the largest finance group at the university. John recently accepted a position as a data analysis at Liberty Mutual, where he currently works while while leading Ranomore Capital with his partner, Aiden Gray. After growing up uh, in Calgary, Canada, Aiden Gray attended Colorado School of Mines. He graduated with honors in computer science and data science. At Mines, Aiden was the president of the Mines Investment Club, the premier finance club of the school. Aiden has started and led two investment groups, Grayling and Raymar Capital. The latter is at the moment focusing on commodities industry. So uh, really excited to share a little bit about uh, the two of you and excited to get into our conversation and have you on the show. So um, first question, what economic, economic trends are you watching in 2023 in regards to your investments? I guess one that I'm really looking to follow is base metals, especially copper. Heading into this year, copper storages are fairly low and the push for green energy is going to require just a lot more copper. So the usage is going to continue to grow. So I do believe that the price of copper will increase, but I, or at least we are going to get exposure to copper through 
junior miners with projects we think will be quite valuable at a slightly higher copper price. We're also looking at inflationary trends in general, like you were talking about a couple minutes ago, Tina. You know, we are seeing inflation cooling gradually, um, hopefully, which will kind of allow for an easier flow of funds into equity markets. Um, we're kind of looking at things like, you know, the price of oil and natural gas throughout the next year. You know, we've been seeing them have a lower year-over-year percent gain from 2021 to 2022, which does lead to lower inflation. We're also watching the price of lumber. That's been plummeting lately. Um, prices per shipping container have also been falling. Um, and all this kind of ties back into uh, interest rates changes. You know, if the interest rates remain high, like the Fed kind of proposes that they will, that's going to lead to a lot different um, a lot different market than if they start to slash them like a lot of different analysts um, project that they might. Absolutely. So what are the general strategies that you employ when looking for an investment? What catches your eye? I guess it's kind of unique. Usually it depends on the sector. I like to go by what I think is going to be doing well instead of just trying to pick an individual company. So if you took like copper or oil for energy, for example, when I like find that sector, that energy sector, I'll then look at it and I try to find companies that don't have too much debt or at least profitable at the moment, but are valued at a lower multiple compared to their competitors. So in oil and gas, you mainly value a company off of its like free cash flow. So usually at like a three to five times rate for the Canadian oil and gas companies. So if I come in and see one that's maybe on the three or two times cash flow, then there's got to be a reason for that. Either it has a large amount of debt, it's relatively unknown. There's countless reasons for it, but those ones are, I guess, where I like to look and then see if they have a plan to either like increase production or lower their operating expenses. Okay, John? Yeah, kind of as, as we're a team, we kind of look in the same direction. We try to find companies that might be kind of flying under the radar is how I like to think about it. Companies that have good substantial basises that, you know, in in our thesis makes me makes us think that they're going to perform well in the future. Uh, like Aiden said, it does depend on the industry. Um, so for like, you know, if we're thinking about copper, we might want to look at a company that, um you know, maybe has been setting up to produce, but hasn't been producing lately because the price of copper has been on the rise. So mm-hmm. that makes us think, oh, there might be some um, good potential gains in the future as the price in- tends to uh, increase. Yeah. Also, what if, uh, oh, go ahead, Aiden. Oh, sorry. It was just also with, on top of that, with a lot of these companies, especially in the commodities industry, they're relatively small. So you're looking at small cap ones in the like 100 to 500 million and then 500 million to like the low billions. So they're not like very large companies. and a lot of the, I guess, accomplished CEOs tend to be involved in multiple companies, like through either board of directors or just owning like a large percent of the shares. So you can kind of, that's like another thing I really like to look for is just who the like inside ownership is and who's actually running the company. Yeah. And that's how great that is because it gives you an indicator for sure of what the Mm -hmm. confidence that they have in the company. And that's, uh, that's why it's the importance of having experts um, on your side that are helping you get navigate through this. Um, And the reason I wanted to invite uh, John Aiden into the show, John, did you, were you saying something as well? Well, I was just making a comment about it. it can also be interesting to look how much ownership those insiders have. If they have a lot, maybe that points to them being bullish about the company in general. Okay. Yeah. Great. Uh, great tips there for sure. So what effects will uh, rate rising interest rates have on equities market? 
So obviously, first off, you know, as interest rates rise, money becomes more expensive. So companies that invest a lot in R&D are going to have a tougher time because they have to borrow that money to engage in that R&D. You know, we're starting to see this in kind of like the tech sector because a lot of those companies almost exist in the research and development space. Um, we're going to, we've been seeing kind of a general broader devaluation stocks. Um, and this is kind of going to be more difficult for growth stocks because their cash flows are projected into future years. Um, but when you see growth start to fall, that that current valuation plummets. You know, a lot of these companies have really high um, high multiples, so their earnings have to continue to grow to keep up with that high multiple. Like you could think of like Exxon and um, Apple. You know, Exxon and Apple they both made the same amount of money this year, but Apple's actually valued seven like at a seven times multiple, like seven times more than Exxon is, and that's just not going to be able to be continued into the future. Yeah. Aiden? Yeah, I guess I'm kind of on the same thing that the raising rates is going to make money more expensive. So I see investors shifting to plays that are currently producing cash. So ones with like a decent yield will be pretty attractive. And basically anyone that's a low cost and is providing something that isn't really in people's like discretionary spending, because I can see how the US savings has just plummeted over the past year. So only like essentials. Of, of course. So do you think the inflation peaked in the U.S.? And if so, why? So that one's kind of tough. There's kind of two sides of the coin. We do think inflation has peaked. Um, if you look historically, it takes a deeper recession. It takes around like five to seven years to get out of a truly inflationary period. There's also some questions about the oil and gas markets with some supply struggles. And we all know how oil and gas feeds into inflation. The unemployment rate is all kind of, you know, it's still pretty low. Everyone still has jobs. So this is all boons for inflation. But at the same time, wage growth itself um, and uh, um, and hiring have both stagnated. The CPI has been continuously dropping. It just the other week, we got word that, you know, it dropped again um, from 7.1 to 6.5 in December. Consumer savings rate, like Aiden was just mentioning in the U.S., has been significantly dropping since 2022. Um, all this to us points that the peak of inflation is over. We may not be out of the woods, but um, we think the inflationary environment will continue to decrease over the next couple of months. Yeah, I think that like the core inflation is a really important one here because removing like food and energy kind of gives you a good idea on those base ones because those two basically resources have like a lot of volatility. So oil, for instance, when you're comparing to like a year ago, I think as of now, oil is probably down like net year over year from 2021. So you have like a deflationary period for that. And then, but like food, you're seeing like quite great inflation just because of the kind of like historically low yields last year due to decreased fertilizer consumption. And all of that kind of, it makes it kind of tough to see it probably still stay relatively high for the preceding year because I doubt that we're going to see like the same drop in energy prices year over year to like when we looking at it in 2023 january so i don't know if we can count on that and it's the same with like natural gas now that's fallen to i think it's at like a two-year low right now okay yeah so what types of industries could stand to benefit from the current economic situation in the near future well, we've based a lot of our plays on commodities because commodities tend to do well in inflationary environments. You know, we could take a look at, for example, gold miners. Um, if you kind of consider the price of gold since about 2014, it's been holding around 1300. 
Um, but a gold mine, you know, it takes a couple of years to get started up and start producing. Um, so a lot of gold miners that are now producing, they're operating with costs based on a $1,300 gold price, and they were still profitable at that price. But now gold has pushed closer to $1,900. Um, so their price is higher, but that doesn't affect their cost at all. So all that extra price just kind of adds their margins. Um, you know, so we're, that's just one example of how commodities kind of typically can tend to do well in an inflationary environment. You know, uh, people oftentimes use them as hedges. Um, I think also out, outside of just um, like commodities, I think oil and energy is going to do really well because it's kind of an, it, it's an inelastic good, right? You know, so, so an inelastic good is where the demand for the good doesn't really depend on the price, but if oil gets more expensive, it's not like people are going to stop driving their cars or stop heating their houses, you know, things like consumer staples as well. Anything where people can't move their money out of it, you know, those are going to tend to do well because typically their margins just kind of gets, um, just kind of get padded and kind of yeah. tying, tying back a little bit into commodities, you know, if, if energy continues to stay high, like we think it will, uh, you know, uh, oil and uh, natural gas is a huge, um, kind of a key raw material needed for things like copper and aluminum. So if the price of energy is pretty high, it's going to lead to copper and aluminum, uh, their prices is rising as well. So that's yeah. kind of what we're watching. Yeah. Well, yeah. and I, you mentioned gold as being a, a hedge. I mean, in the mortgage industry, I would say inflation is great for real estate because it's really one of the only things you have to hedge against real estate, gold, real estate, you know, your real estate, maybe Bitcoin, right? So that is great to have in a inflationary environment. Absolutely. Uh, Aiden, anything that you uh, were adding? Well, I guess just to add to that, for like the showing how this like fear of demand destruction or like a recession causing a huge decrease in the consumption of oil, COVID, which is arguably like the biggest shutdown of like the world economy for everything just stopping working, it only had a 10 million barrel per day drop in consumption. And if you go back to the 2008 crash, pretty sure that one was only like a three or 4% like demand destruction. So it's fairly like small and like three to 4%, which like the global production is at about a hundred million barrels per day right now. That's like basically what OPEC has said they were going to cut so far in like, or like at the latter half of 22 that they pledged to cut. Well, great conversation I'm having with uh, John Naden coming up next on the Money Hour, continued conversation um, with John Hensler and Aiden Gray uh, from More Capital. We're talking about equity and energy outlook of 2023, right here on 1150 AM KKNW. So do you want to beat Zoom fatigue? Do you want to take your virtual meetings to the very next level? Do you want to learn how John Chen did some of these amazing Zoom techniques? Well, then all you have to do is click on engagingvirtualmeetings.com forward slash conference to register for the Engaging Virtual Meetings Conference 2.0. Coming up in October, you will experience the next level of virtual meetings featuring nine of the top virtual speakers in the world. Come learn the latest in how to take your virtual meetings to the very next level. Again, the website is engagingvirtualmeetings.com forward slash conference for Engaging Virtual Meetings Conference 2.0. Talk radio that will get you thinking. Alternative Talk 1150. You're listening to The Money Hour with your host, Tina Mitchell, on Alternative Talk 1150 AM. Now. Back to the show with local mortgage expert, Tina Mitchell. 
You are listening to The Money Hour at 1150 AM KKNW, the Saturday, January 21st show. You can also listen to my show podcast, Facebook premiere, or catch my show on my show YouTube channel. I'm your host and local mortgage expert, Tina Mitchell. I am here to help you build a strong financial blueprint one week and one show at a time. If you're hearing my show at a different time or day, you are listening to a rebroadcast. I'm here to answer any questions or connect you with the guests that I have on the show today. You can reach out to the show online at themoneyhour.com. And now continued conversation with John Hensler and Aiden Gray of Remore Capital. We're talking about equity and energy outlook of 2023 right here on 1150 AM KKNW. So kind of picking up um, from where we uh, left off, let's move over to with the Fed's current aggressive monetary policy. The US dollar is extremely strong relative to the euro and the pound. What effects do you believe that this will have on the overall market of com- um, commodities market? Yeah, so with like the US dollar being strong, it makes the purchasing power of that currency much more strong. So and since all of these commodities are traded in the US dollar, it's just a huge advantage for them. So companies that I guess are manufacturing in the US that need to ship in raw materials, they're going to do well because they'll be able to buy those for relatively cheap because of how strong their dollar is compared to wherever it is being produced. Also, money just tends to flock towards currencies with better returns. And since the U.S. is offering um, higher rates than the other major currencies like the euro or the yen, um, it's made it much stronger. So this makes importing cheaper and exporting less competitive. And considering that many other com- like companies and countries hold debt in U.S. dollars, this makes this debt more expensive, which might lead to some potential defaults overseas. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah, I tend to I tend to kind of be on the same way. Um, I I personally like seeing a stronger dollar for our for our investments. Um, you know, it does give any of our plays the ability to kind of purchase the raw materials that they might need at a at a much um, reduced price. So yeah, I think it's it, yeah. Yeah, and one last thing to add to that is because we we are invested in like Canadian energy companies, the strong U.S. dollar is actually a kind of a nice hedge for them because if the price of oil drops as a result of the US dollar increasing, their like net revenue in Canadian dollars remains relatively constant because they're still selling that in US dollars. So like if the, I think like it was the exchange rate at one point was like a dollar Canadian was like 80 something cents and it's dropped to like 75 now. So that's like a 5% difference. But if you're selling $80 oil at a 75, like, the one to 0.75 ratio, you're still selling at over a hundred dollar oil for them. So they still make quite a bit of money and they kind of like that exchange rate because their expenses stay in that Canadian dollar. So that doesn't increase. Of course, of course. So what do you look for when investing in oil and gas sector, i.e. Um, commodity pricing production? What are you watching for? So yeah, we kind of touched on this earlier, but one thing is just the like, macroeconomics so what the oil and like natural gas prices looking like in the future at the moment i'm kind of bullish on the macroeconomics part just because there is very limited supply the u.s just finally stopped their spr release which they initially said was going to stop in october so they released a lot of bunch of extra barrels there which eventually have to be recouped you can also see that the government putting in that essential 70 dollar floor price when they say that's going to 
that's like the price they're going to refill the SPR at means you can use that number as a pretty good like base case for the price of oil for like the next couple of years. And based on that, you kind of see what companies can produce like oil profitably at that price. So that kind of ties into like just their operating expenses. Certain ones are better than others. And so I like to look for ones that you can generally are getting a payout in like the sub six month range. So when they go to invest into drilling into like a new drill, like a new well or whatnot, how long it takes for them to pay off that initial investment is that like six months, that's like a pretty good rate because that means then all the money after that point is just pure profit for them. And a lot of companies can do that at these higher prices, but once you get down to the lower ones, it becomes a little more selective. But if you can find ones with those low cost producers, they're pretty like downside risk hedged because they can't, they can like produce at like a profitable level at like the $40 WTI range. So if you can find one with those low cost production and then also an increase in their production. So they're drilling more, they have a good reserves. That's something to look for. And like the last thing, no oil company right now, at least if you're trying to find one, they shouldn't be paying any taxes. They should have just a ton of tax pools because over the past, I want to say like seven years from like 2015 when the shale boom happened, these guys have been running in the red. So they built up a lot of tax pools to where they, they don't have to pay any. So that's a nice bonus to look for as well. Yeah. Sean. Yeah, I would add? echo. Um, not particularly. I would just really echo everything Aiden says. I think he, he touched on everything that we kind of look for. Yeah, that is awesome. So in places like Switzerland and California, rolling blackouts have occurred due to the grid strain from the green energy initiatives. What needs to take place to allow for this green energy transition to successfully occur? Yeah, this is a tough one because, you know, we have been seeing this um, and my heart goes out to all those people who are affected by um, these occurrences. But uh, what, what I think really is that, you know, first off, we need to invest enough in the short term in oil and gas so that green energy has the time to grow in its ability and size so that it can kind of support these larger populations. I mean, this isn't going to be an immediate switch. It's more of a long term, slow wean off we're looking at. I mean, if you if you think about it, like 70% of the like uh, yearly energy usage by the USA is created by natural gas and petroleum. And that's that's just energy usage for like, you know, your electricity, your lights. Yeah. That's not even considering if we'd want to do electric cars, electric manufacturing, you know, only about 12% of the energy in the US is based off of, you know, green energy, which is that's you can't just turn off oil and gas for now anyway. This is a pretty substantial gap. Um, so there's going to be time, um, there's going to be a need to be a lot of money invested into the infrastructure and the like dissemination of energy once we actually get things, uh, you know, get wind and solar and what other types of energy that, um, what other types of renewable energy that are going to be created. There needs to be investment into actually getting that energy to where it needs to be. And that's not really a small thing, you know, like you could look at something like the Traverse Wind Center. It's in Oklahoma and it's like the largest wind center that's been created. Um, it took about one and a half billion dollars to create. It took two years to create and it can power about 300,000 homes per year, which is awesome. But I mean, there's a hundred, like nearly 150 million residential homes yeah. in the U.S. 
So it's that's a really small price price um, piece of the pie, and you know this the company that created it are even projecting that they're going to need to put another thirty billion dollars into um, the grid restructuring over the next four years to bring it to full capacity. Um, so all that's to say, you know, it's going to take a lot of time, going to take a lot of money, and it's going to take some like government initiatives to give companies, you know, the incentive to actually do this. Um, I think a lot of these, you know, green initiatives, they aren't super profitable in the moment. So it's hard to get investors really interested in putting their money mm-hmm. towards it because they're not going to get an immediate return off of it. Like, I mean, like Tesla, you know, cool company and everything. But if you look from like 2019 to 2021, their profits like essentially equal their carbon credits. So that's an example of the government really needing to prop up a green mm-hmm. energy initiative company to, you know, keep it, keep it chugging along. And keep it alive enough to where people can get interested and get usage from it. Yeah, great, uh, great share, John. Aiden, anything to add? I feel like John covers that pretty yeah. much. Yeah. Yeah, that was uh, that was really great. So how did your fund perform over the last year or so? Yeah, so 2022 was actually a pretty good year. We had a 25.97% return. So an alpha of around 44%, which was pretty nice. Yeah. Congratulations. Yeah, that was a good year. That was mainly a result of the like energy sector. That was our big winner for the year. But now we're set up for hopefully 2023, the commodity, like base metals as the next one. Yeah. Yeah. Got a little bit of padding. So now we got some, got some fun, fun stuff to do in the next coming year. Yeah, absolutely. So you you shared what worked, anything that you want to add to that, and what what did you find that did not work? Yeah, so it's hard to say if it did not work or did work yet because the plays aren't like a short-term play. We're in theory planning to hold a lot of these positions for like three to five years. So what's happened in the short term since we bought for the positions that are in the red would be like in the past eight months, which obviously hasn't been great. And even in the commodities, we saw gold and copper drop from like near all time highs at the start of 2022 down. Like real estate, if you're, you know, if you're looking at flipping in real estate, you've got to be really strategic, but most people are looking at real estate as a long and a longer term investment, right? Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, no. So it's like those ones, it's hard to really say. I guess the one thing would be getting better at timing the price of commodities when we entered because if we could have bought into our gold plays when it was down at like 1600 instead of when it was at 1800 well, do you think you're going to get a crystal ball there Aiden yeah I, <laughs> I wish yeah <laughs> John what, what about you yeah I feel the same way I, I don't think anything really didn't work because we still have belief in like our theses of the companies that we've invested into uh-huh. there were just a couple that we through our money in right as commodities started to started to shrink. So like we had a, you know, we made, we got some positions in copper when the prices, when the prices were in the high fours. Um, and then the price of copper just dropped like immediately after we entered the play. So that kind of initially hurt those investments. But now that we're seeing the price of copper come up again, um, those, some of those positions are really starting to generate some pretty cool returns. You know, we have, we have one play that's brought us about uh, is up 18% over the last week um, or last two weeks, excuse me. Um, so we, we still have a lot of belief in the positions that we've entered. 
yeah. there is just some, uh, maybe some market timing that uh, your crystal ball, Tina, or maybe Aiden's crystal ball could help us out with, you know? Yeah, yeah. we all want that crystal ball for sure. So Everyone should you, have one. Yeah, I, I know. What the heck? So what are you watching for in 2023 in the real estate market? Interested to hear what you have to say. Yeah, so I guess yeah. one thing I'm looking for is when, like just basically the Fed rates. So like, as you said, the prediction of a 0.25 like rate hike at like the February meeting. And that would be nice to see because at least that shows that slowing down and then yes. hopefully approaching zero to when they could eventually start to reduce them again. So I thought if I saw like a reduction in rates this year, it would definitely, I would definitely be looking for some real estate investments. Sean? Yeah, I think um, we we as a group actually were seriously looking at getting into the um, real estate market kind of right before they started rising rates. So we kind of had to put the brakes on that. Um, but one thing that I think is interesting to look at is the difference between supply and demand over the last year or two. You know, over COVID, a ton of people wanted to start buying houses, so they started ramping up production of new of new housing. Mm -hmm. um, but that takes a little bit of time, you know, and that started in 2020, um, 2021, now it's 2023. So a lot of those homes are like starting to be done created, being done created, and they're on the market. Um, so there's this huge influx of supply, but at the same time, the rates have really decreased demand because mortgages are just so expensive. Yeah. But I think over time, when the rates start to become cut again, and so mortgages get cheaper, that demand is going to swing back up mm -hmm. and supply is going to start swinging down. And we're going to kind of see an intersection of those, two, of those two lines on a hypothetical supply and demand graph. And I think that's when it's a really good time to kind of get into the market, start riding that demand high and um, hoping that they don't find a way to make houses within like a month or so like that. Something yeah. like that. Kinda... Well, I'm uh, Aiden. Oh, I just that you can kind of look for that too, is the like price of lumber that John mentioned earlier. Uh -huh. You saw a huge spike in 2021. And then once it hit 2022, you just saw that thing go plummeting. So yeah. once that finds a bottom and you start to see that, settle out a little bit, that could be a good indicator as well. Yeah, I'm always, you know, obviously I'm in the mortgage industry and I want to close loans. I make money when I actually close a loan. So I want people mm -hmm. to buy homes because they're definitely not refinancing. But I do confidently believe that right now is a potential missed opportunity. I mean, one of the smartest guys in the world, Warren Buffett, says buy when people are fearful and sell when they're greedy. You know, coming out of the market that we were just in 27 years in the industry, I've never, ever seen a market like that, where people are paying hundreds of thousands of dollars over asking price, and maybe they're the one out of 20 that were the lucky one to get the offer, then they were waiving appraisal. So when the appraisal came in short $200,000, $300,000, they paid that two or 300000 to actually close the deal. Crazy. So now with the rates where they're at, it's an opportunity to get in and maybe even be able to negotiate because I'm here to say when the rates go down, that crazy frenzy is going to start all over again. So I say, unless you're looking at flipping a home, if you're, if you're looking at getting in real estate and staying in real estate, get in, buy right now, take advantage of the opportunity because it could be a missed opportunity if you wait until that greediness comes back in, right? Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. 
Absolutely, 100% agree. I could miss the boat. Again, uh, yeah, you could miss the boat. You don't want to be saying year from now, I wish I would have done it in 2023. Because I think in, you know, if you li- listen to all the, uh, you know, the best economists um, in the real estate space, you know, this year, um, we're going to probably see some appreciation uh, continue to drop. And, you know, but that's the time that you want to start gathering and building. Um, because unless you do, you do not lose money in real estate, unless you're mm-hmm. forced to sell in a bad market and you are not reinvesting in another real estate class asset class at that time. Otherwise you you know, the, the only way you lose money in real estate is you're forced to sell in a bad market and you're not reinvesting in another real estate asset. So on that conversation, I think it's a good time to break. Um, coming up next on the Money Hour, continued conversation with my two guests uh, for the entire show today, John Hensler and Aiden Gray uh, for more capital. We're talking about equity and energy outlook for 2023 right here on 1150 AM KKNW. Let local real estate agent Serena Savage with Keller Williams remind you that she's there to be a resource and consultant for all your real estate needs. You can reach her at 253-228-1429 or her email at serenasavage at kw.com. That's S-I-R-E-N-A dot S-A-V-A-G-E at K-W as in kellerwilliams.com. So whenever you're ready to buy, sell, or invest in real estate, don't be average work with a savage have something important to say want to help improve our world need to promote your business uniquely and effectively kknw is the answer our staff helps broadcasters and podcasters create professional sounding audio bring your talent and let our experts help you craft a radio show or podcast that best delivers your message learn more at 1150kknw.com that's 1150kknw.com kknw talk variety that's live and local walking your talk take us with you the kknw app makes streaming our programming easy on your phone or tablet you're listening to the money hour with your host tina mitchell on alternative talk 11:50 a.m now back to the show with local mortgage expert tina mitchell you are listening to The Money Hour at 11.50 a.m. KKNW, the Saturday, January 21st show. You can also listen to my show podcast, Facebook premiere, or you can catch my show on my show YouTube channel. I'm your host and local mortgage expert, Tina Mitchell. I bring into studio each week the best of the best experts in our local market on everything regarding your money. And now continued conversation with my two guests, John Hensler and Aiden Gray of Remore Capital, Equity and Energy Outlook of 2023, right here on 1150 AM KKNW. So what do you recommend for novice investors? Just get out there. To read. Yeah, to read mostly. Yeah, get out there as much as you can. Especially the ones that, Introduce you to some of the more like basic concepts. A book I'd recommend would be Common Sense Investing by John C. Bogle. It's just super easy introduction to mutual funds. And it's probably one of the best places to start and like most relevant to the current age we're in with all the different ETFs that are out there. Yeah. Similarly, I, w- I would also recommend a book, um, Understanding Money by Jonathan Clements. Uh, Clemens, that, that was my like main book, similar to Aiden. Um, and I think, you know, how I started my journey personally was just 
getting a subscription to the Wall Street Journal, reading as much as I could, and just consistently doing it. Because at the beginning, like you're not really going to understand anything, but your brain kind of processes information over time. And it kind of, you know, over time, things stick in your head and you start thinking, oh, I've seen that term before. or Oh, I know what that means. And then you can kind of go down on little rabbit holes, like looking things up on Google, checking out Investopedia, um, and also trying to get connected as much as you can to people who are in the space and maybe know a little bit more about it than you do and being engaged in those conversations, like asking a lot of questions. Um, you know, when I first got into the space, you know, really in college, um, I just met a lot of people who knew a lot more about the space than I did. And I took the time to like, like, you know, like my friend Aiden here, you know, to chat with them and hang out and be like, huh, like, what can I learn from these guys? Like, what can I offer up as well? Um, and then put some money in the market, like go out and buy something, like buy some index funds, you know, maybe even if you really want to get into it, you know, try to find a cool company that you think is going to do well, throw not a ridiculous amount, but like, you know, something so you have a bit of skin in the game and you have some care about it and check and see how that investment does and try to yeah. think, you know, okay, did this do well because my thesis was right or did it do well for a different reason or did it fail? Was my thesis wrong or was there something weird going on in the market? You know, no matter what you do, if you're involved, you're, you're going to learn a lot. Yeah. yeah on the job training is yeah. the best, right? Yeah. Seriously. Aiden? Yeah. And just like with that, when you're doing it with people, like just having like the conversations and wanting to learn with them and just talking about it, that is definitely the best way to learn. And as John said, just putting money in the market, that is great. If you're really truly strapped and like are not in the position to invest at this time, a good thing to do is just open up a paper trading account. There's like hundreds of websites out there where you can just start with like a hundred grand of paper money and just practice some investments and see how you're doing. And you can test your thesis that way. And that's a great thing. I know every single finance club or like finance class I've taken, almost always they like to put a little like stock picking contests where they give you like a hundred thousand dollar paper trading accounts. So that's a great place to start. Oh, what great, uh, great advice, uh, Aiden. Thank you. So what do you recommend for individuals looking to start their own investment group? Yeah. So I guess I started my first one just with my like high school friend right after we turned 18 and we were legal to open up a brokerage account, but it was mainly just, we sat and, like math class and we just talk about like what was going on in the market that day. And after that, you started to read more. And I read this book, The Quants, and that's just a great telling of like the quant revolution in like Wall Street in like the early 2000s, late 90s. And that just really made me want to start one of my own funds. Yeah. So him and I started it up. We ran it on like a, we really wanted to go for like value stocks with a decent yield. It didn't do that great because during that time growth was just that was like the king so it underperformed the market but then after we closed it up then i started this one with john and one other guy and yeah i would just it's fun so i'd say looking looking at you want somebody who's around the same like level of skill as you mm -hmm. you don't want to have too big a separation because then it can feel a little weird you also want to make sure you're both putting like skin in the game on like an equal partnership because you don't want to have some like somebody having like more say than another just because they might have put in more money right off the bat whatnot so trying to keep everything equal and having a agreement prior to starting is always good but it's really just the people you want to start with somebody that you 
you trust their opinion and you want to go into business with. Yeah. So how should investors navigate uh, the current market conditions? What's some advice there? I think I'd be careful. <laughs> I was going to say, yeah. Because yeah. I see, I, I love to read these forums and stuff. And you always see people post stuff like, oh, this stock has fallen 70%. This is a great time to buy, right? Uh-huh. That's not necessarily true. It could fall another 70% from there. It's not, that's not a bottom. So you want to be careful seeing something that, oh, it looks like such a great deal because it's fallen so much. There's usually a reason for that fall. Yeah. So if you can find that reason, and then determine whether or not you think that's like justifiable, then you can make your decision. But I'd be, yeah, I'd be careful on those ones. And same thing, Aiden, on when you're seeing, when you're already invested in it, you see it drop 70%. It's not a guarantee that you want to hold because, you know, again, like Warren says, people, you know, you, you, you sell when people are greedy and you buy when people, but it doesn't, you have to be strategic that it's in the right investment, right? So, you know, sometimes yeah, you gotta you, sell and get out because it's gonna continue to plummet. Yeah, no, you yeah, need to know get emotionally to cut your losses. Yeah. yeah. No, that's probably, that's a huge thing is just being able to sell because before you enter into the position, like we mentioned earlier, you wanna have a thesis. So you think the company is gonna try to hit these targets by these dates and based upon those targets and those dates, you expect the valuation to increase by this much. If all of a sudden they miss a date, they start missing targets, the valuation is no longer going to go to that number you previously had when you first bought. So you need to refactor that to reflect its current market position. Yeah. John? Yeah, I I tend to agree. I think people can get really emotionally attached to to their investments, especially if it's in like an individual company, you know, because they think like, oh, this was my idea. This is my baby. And it's like, well, it's not, man. Like it's, it's an, it's, you know, it's, you had a thesis. If it's wrong, be ready to dump out of it. If you're getting into something, you know, have a plan for it. Like, you know, have an exit date. That's something we're big on. Um, and um, really look at facts, figures, and data more than um, almost, do more quantitative analysis than like qualitative analysis, I think, mm-hmm. for like individual companies. Um, on the flip side of that, for like the broader market, for people who aren't like interested in, you know, checking in, you know, getting involved in an individual company, um, for the broader market, I think it is truly a bit more like macroeconomic analysis, like understanding why inflation is moving the way it's moving, you know, mm-hmm. even just looking into some things like what's the U.S. savings rate, like how's, you know, what kind of companies are performing well uh, on a broader view um, and kind of, you know, you can tailor your diversified mix of investments to more heavily include growth companies or value companies or companies in the in, uh, like energy sector, you know? Um, and I would kind of just really try to try to make a thesis in general and for all of your investments that makes sense and check in with other people, like check in with people who know more than you and say, yeah. Hey, does this make sense or not before you make any crazy moves? Yeah, and that yeah. kind of ties into a Warren Buffett's thing where don't buy something you don't understand. So don't yeah. be trying to go into industries where you really don't know how these guys are making money or know what they're doing. Try to make sure you understand the business. Yeah, and uh, another benefit of uh, being with an investment group and advisor to help kind of navigate through that and nothing worse than feeling like you're all alone out there. Even if you do feel that you have some expertise when when you're doing it on your own, you can start losing confidence and that can get, that's 
kind of where the emotional piece can definitely come in, uh, John. And I like how you mentioned too, we all know we want to be with people that are at least at our level. Ideally, they're, they're a lot smarter than us. Those are the ones that we want to be hanging out with um, and in our investment club for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. So we've talked a little bit about uh, real estate and interest rates and inflation. What is your thought on the relationship between inflation, interest rates, and home prices? Well, I mean, obviously, like, as interest rates increase, mortgages get more expensive. So then, you know, the demand for homes might drop because they're too pricey for some people to buy. So then uh, as that demand drops, the price drops. Um, That's, you know, that's one thing that jumps out immediately to me. In terms of inflation, I think inflation does hit the housing markets. Obviously, like, you know, increasing the prices, you know, somewhat as like the price of lumber increases and everything. Um, But I think the main impact is just that that interest rates to the mortgages to the decrease in demand. So, you know, I think every 1% increase in interest rates is a drop in buying power by 10%. So when we've seen a 3% increase in interest rates, buying power has dropped 30%. So if you wanted to keep your payment at $3,000 a month, well, that now is dropping that buyer buying power by 30%. You know, the inflation um, and the benefit of, you know, that we've talked about in hedging with real estate. Again, if you've got a $3,000 a month mortgage payment, that $3,000 a month, it is, you know, you're, you're locked in at that where that $3,000 is not, it's, it's getting you a lot less than what it was in inflation with everything else. Correct. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. That's the beauty of real estate is the leverage. Yeah. Nowhere else can you get such great leverage. You try to convince somebody to give you five, 10 times leverage on a stock, it's not a chance. <laughs> a little bit different. So, yeah. um, why do growth stocks, growth stocks typically perform better in a low inflation environment and value stocks perform better in a high inflation environment? growth stocks it's you got to spend money to make money and they're spending a lot of money and when that money you're spending has high interest rates that just is so much more expensive for them so the low interest rates makes it just so much easier to invest you can kind of look at the SPAC market in like 2021 the valuation these companies were getting were absurd and now you're seeing it like 90 percent falls on almost all of them so the like just the supply of money just dried up yeah yeah i mean like it, when inflation raises like typically the fed will raise rates and that like raising rates just cuts into the current valuations of growth companies because like so much of their cash flow is just out in the future whereas yeah. like value companies their their profits are more near term so that devaluation yeah. isn't so isn't so tough and you're getting uh like a return on that capital much faster so if i put my money into a like a value company that's paying a dividend, I'm going to at least realize some of that investment each year if I don't want to sell. Yeah, absolutely. Well, great conversation with both of you. I appreciate so much uh, coming into my virtual studio. And if you're listening to the show right now and you want to know more about John and Aiden and how they can help you um, in their investment group, um, you can go to themoneyr.com and I can connect you uh, with them. And I just want to thank both of you again for taking time out of your busy day to share your expertise with my listeners uh, here on 1150 AM KKNW. Yeah, thanks thanks so much for having us. 
Yeah, it was so great. Well, please, again, reach out to the show, themoneyhour.com. Uh, any assistance that I can be regarding money or connect you with the guests that I've had on the show today. Uh, Tina Mitchell here, your host and local mortgage expert. I've got to sign out for the day, sign off for the day. Uh, but I look forward to talking with you. Uh, more money on 1150 AM KKNW. Tina Mitchell, MLO 145. 420 is a licensed loan originator with Highlands Residential Mortgage Limited, NMLS 134871. The views expressed by the speakers on the preceding program are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views of Highlands Residential Mortgage Limited, nor are they necessarily endorsed by Highlands Residential Mortgage Limited.